3: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: Hey, welcome back, everybody. As we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program, we're going to talk about uh, a subject that's uh, near and dear to the hearts of uh, many people in our neck of the woods. This show is based in uh, Flint, Michigan. And my guest this hour is one of the authors of a uh, new book called Prophets of Distrust citizen consumers, drinking water, and the crisis of confidence in American government. His name is Manny Teodoro, and he uh, joins me by phone. Good morning, Manny. Welcome to the show.
1: Morning, Tom. Great to be with you.
2: Um, Did you realize when we set up this interview you were going to be talking to somebody in Flint, Michigan?
1: (laughs) You know, I didn't at first, but of course I I used the Google and uh, found you right away, and I thought, oh, Flint, Michigan. These folks are not going to need any explanation for why this is an important topic. Well, but it it, it extends beyond the, the
2: Flint experience with, uh, you know, problems with our municipal infrastructure and incompetence and cost-cutting and, uh, you know, all, all the things that went into what's now referred to as the Flint water crisis. There's a lack of trust in everything. People don't trust science. They don't trust elected officials. They don't trust their, you know, the, the infrastructure in their communities. And that's one of the things that, that is, is so attractive to me about your book is trying to deal with, with how we turn that back
1: around. Sure. Sure. Look, the thing that's so fascinating as a social scientist to me, the thing that's so fascinating and tragic about the Flint water crisis is, is that it was at its heart not a failure of technology, not a failure of engineering. It was a failure of, of organization and politics.
2: No, it wasn't. And if I'm, if I might just just take us off on a tangent here for a moment, one of the things that was frustrating to me as as a local was the the beating that the Flint River took after years of efforts to clean it up post-automotive um, plants. And one of the things that I learned throughout that process is that a lot of municipal drinking water systems are drawing their water from rivers, which is difficult to do. We have access to lake water, which is a little easier to treat and so on. But yet they're doing it and doing it fairly successfully. You argue in your book that, you know, it's hard to get people to trust things. And, and you know, you set Flint aside from this assertion that, that most um, municipal water systems are, are safe, and how do you convince people that don't trust them that they're safe and, and, and get them off of bottled water,
1: if that's the goal? Sure, sure. Look, what, I've been working in the water sector for 25 years. One of the things that's really been striking to me over the last roughly six years, since Flint became a household name for all the wrong reasons, is, is that everyone in America now, thinks of their drinking water through the lens of Flint Michigan. We're all Flint now in that sense. Uh, one of the themes that really came out of our book that surprised certainly surprised me as a, as a researcher was how much people across the country changed their relationship with their own tap water because of news that they read about in Flint. Now, Flint Flint's water problems as severe and as horrible as they are you know flint wasn't the first it wasn't the worst it wasn't the largest drinking water contamination problem we've had in our country's history not even in our recent history but it's the one that caught the public's imagination and we saw that reverberate across the country in the way that people related to their tap water and you know you put your finger on it a moment ago a Failure in tap water undermines failure in a whole set of institutions. Everything from you know, science, government, uh, uh, regulatory authorities. Everybody falls under suspicion because it was such a, a colossal organizational failure, and people everywhere respond to that. Uh, so at one level, this book is about drinking water and consumer behavior, and do I choose tap or bottle? But another level, at a deeper level, our book is really about trust. It's, it's about the relationship between the performance of those basic services, you don't get any more basic than water, you know, that, those basic services and our, and our faith in institutions. One of the things that's so different about water from virtually anything else that government does for us. So water comes into our home. You know, it's the only government service that we ingest. You know, it, it's, it is the most intimate relationship between the citizen and the state. We literally take it into our bodies. So when something is, is wrong with that water, in a way that, that government should have addressed and did not, you know, that is that is profoundly uh, that is profoundly shaking to people, and then and it, with good reason do people distrust? Uh, we we don't think people are people are crazy to distrust institutions that fail them this way, and the thing that's so fascinating about Flint and other, other situations where we've had drinking water failure is the way that that failure reverberates far beyond the borders of Flint or wherever the failure occurred to change the way people think across the country.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, because one of the things that you talk about in your book is uh, the shift uh, from from tap water to bottled water. And, and we see it every, everywhere people are in their their yoga pants walking around with a jug of water. Yeah. And it's, um, it and it's kind of funny to me because where's that water coming from? And I just have this, right. th- I have this picture in, in my mind, Manny, of you know a little shopkeeper in Dublin, you know, a little little pub owner and he's filling bottles from the tap. You know, and shipping them off to America because they'll buy bottled water.
1: Sure. Look, one of, the, one of the funny things about tap water, and I shouldn't say funny, one of the striking things about of bottled water, I should say, is that in a lot of cases, the bottled water that people buy at the store is simply tap water. Put in a bottle and put onto a truck and, and sent to a grocery store. Sometimes there's some additional treatment. It might be filtered, um, but it might not be. There, there's, there's no telling. And one of the, the things that makes that so, so important for understanding trust is that when someone chooses to buy a bottle of water at a supermarket or, or a convenience store, they're voting with their dollars. They're saying, "I trust the manufacturer and the retailer of this product more than I trust the manufacturer, uh, or the, excuse me, the producer, the utility that's sending water into my home. And the irony of that is we know a lot more about tap water quality and tap water sources than we do about bottled water quality and bottled water sources and yet people are willing to pay 50, 100, 200% more for uh, the bottled product than they are for the tap product uh, that they get for, you know, maybe a penny a gallon.
2: You know what um I I, I wonder does the fda have the public's back where tap water is concerned
1: where tap water is concerned
2: uh, no, no i, no, I, I meant things? bottled water i meant bottled. Oh, water. okay i'm sorry i misspoke
1: sure sure uh, this is good good for our for our, your listeners drinking water falls under two entirely separate regulatory regimes uh, tap water is regulated by the epa uh, US, at the U.S. level and then through state agencies. EPA regulates what comes out of your tap. Bottled water is considered a food product for regulatory purposes. and So that's regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. In principle, the two fall under the same, they, they, the same water quality standards apply to both of them. Uh, that, that I should say, until, I want to say about 12, 13 years ago, bottled water was entirely unregulated. But Congress changed that, and the FDA now regulates bottled water. And in principle, they're supposed to apply the same rules as the Safe Drinking Water Act. However, the procedures are very different. And I'll admit to not knowing a whole lot about how FDA handles these, uh, these procedures, so I, I don't want to speak out of turn beyond what I know. However, one of the reasons that we know so much about tap water performance is that the Safe Drinking Water Act that applies to tap water includes a lot of public reporting requirements one of the reasons that scholars like me can analyze uh, public utility uh, performance is that they're required to report a whole lot of water quality information publicly when there's a failure they're required to notify the public you know, when there's a water main break, they have to announce that there's a boil water notice. They have to tell the public when there's a failure. Those same reporting requirements don't apply to bottled water. So we only hear about bottled water failures when the FDA takes some kind of an enforcement action. That, that's, that is, as far as I understand it, the key difference between the two regimes. Plus, you know, there's different testing protocols. Uh, you know, tap water has to be tested uh, by, by uh, utility providers multiple points multiple times a day uh you know there there are different rules in place for the two the two systems um and the main difference for purposes of our book the main difference is transparency and that that, again what's so striking about that is that people are willing to pay this much higher price for a product that they know very little about it's very much a signal that we have people in the public who trust a commercial provider more than they trust the government
2: well, they, they assume that regulatory agencies like the FDA are um, holding them to very strict standards and, and for some reason people have, have come to distrust tap water and it, and it goes back a ways. It didn't just start with Flint, although Flint certainly uh, uh, brightened the spotlight on uh, people's fears of tap water. But it actually, goes back to this notion that that um, uh, municipalities uh, and and public utilities that were providing water um, were adding fluoride to the water, and that became a concern to people. People started thinking, "Well, I'm not going to drink tap water because they're putting stuff in it."
1: Sure, sure. Well, and that that's you know that that's a, that's a decades, decades, several decades old. Uh, phenomena, people's distrust of, of fluoridation and water. Um, yeah, I mean, look, as I said, the but ever since then, linked. there's been
2: this this feeling that you you know, it, it's it's okay to clean with, it's okay to bathe with, but you don't want to ingest tap water.
1: Sure, and then it gets back to that sort of deep and intimate relationship. That's where that's where that uh the fact that it's this service that we ingest makes water different what i think is was so is so striking though whether it's years ago with with words, worries about fluoride or or in present day with worries about lead or other contaminants is that when we choose when people choose a commercial product instead they're choosing a product about which they know very little or anything and and a product where you know, there's no elected official in charge. Now, in principle, if you are unhappy with your tap water quality you, and you are served by a municipal utility or, or a regulated public utility, in principle, you have an outlet for that discontent. You can contact your city council, you can contact your your utilities board, you can contact your, your state regulator. And in principle, those authorities are supposed to respond by addressing your concerns. The fact that people are are more willing to pay a high price to a commercial provider instead, to a commercial uh, retailer to buy a bottle of water at 200 times the price, that's a signal that people don't trust the governing authorities to address their legitimate concerns. And this is where, you know, folks in Flint, you know, they, they have good reason <laughs> to question and to 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 be suspicious about whether GOVERNING AUTHORITIES WILL RESPOND TO THEIR LEGITIMATE CONCERNS BECAUSE WE, we SAW that, THAT FAILURE PLAY OUT. Uh, but, BUT THE main, MAIN POINT IS HERE, this is, THIS IS CONSUMER BEHAVIOR, OR I SHOULD SAY, RATHER, IT'S CITIZEN BEHAVIOR, masquerading as consumer behavior. Manny, that, that, I have to... People's um, choices uh, are, are linked together that way.
2: I, I have to take a break here, Manny, but I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Yeah, of course. Great. Love to. My guest is uh, Manny Teodoro, and uh, the book is called Profits of Distrust. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more right Everybody's
0: after this. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now.
1: Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters.
4: Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available
2: to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you
5: love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get
0: vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic
1: and moving our country forward. It's up to you.
4: Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital,
3: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
2: And hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is a researcher and one of the authors of a new book called "Profits of Distrust, Citizen Consumers, Drinking Water, and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government. And uh, his name is Manny Teodoro, and he joins me uh, by phone. Manny, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that.
1: Yeah, no, of course. I, I thought it was it was particularly fitting that we had a an ad there that mentioned the threat of water shutoffs.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's uh, in the news today in Flint as we speak. They're just starting to do water turnoffs uh, for people that habitually don't pay their water bill. But um, and, and uh, do. Do people resent, by and large, being charged for tap water as opposed to going down to the store and buying a case of bottled water?
1: Boy, that's a, that's a tough one. We, did, we didn't ask that question directly in this book, but I, I think that the answer almost certainly has to be yes, or at least in places where folks sort of reflexively distrust their tap water. There's this phenomenon that economists call uh, defensive spending. Now, defensive spending means that I'm buying something. I'm spending my money for something that I think is going to protect me from some threat. It's not because I particularly like the thing. It's because I think it's going to protect me from some threat. I mean, most most obvious example would be something like uh, a home security system. But buying well, bottled water you know, or buying canned, commercial... Canned food. Manny, you know, I,
2: I don't think anybody loves canned food, but boy, you tell, tell people that there are going to be some problems or bad weather, and all of a sudden they're buying all kinds of canned food.
1: Right, right. But I think the, the concept here is a little bit different. It, it's more that I am willing to pay a premium because I believe that the the, the product that is coming out of my tap is unsafe. And so there, there's no amount of money you know even though, even though what might comes out of my tap might be a penny a gallon, and what comes from the case of Aquafina at Walmart might cost me two dollars a gallon, but at two dollars a gallon, even if it's 200 percent the price of what comes out of my tap, that's still a bargain if I believe that what comes out of my tap is going to kill me. So I think, yeah, there's, there's to some extent, got to be a resentment there that, hey, you're, you're selling me a product you the utility are selling me a product that i believe is harmful to me and you're asking me to pay for it even though you're telling me it's safe to drink and i if i don't believe that of course i'm i'm going to resent that and you know i think that's that's the only reasonable explanation for people spending the kind of money that they do for bottled water look one of the things that that really surprised us going into this project is that uh, you know for, for those of us who remember the world before bottled water was a, a popular thing, it, it, when bottled water came along for the first time, those of us especially who worked in the water sector thought it was a weird kind of novelty. Like Who would, do, who would buy this stuff, right? Like why, why are you buying this stuff that's sitting in a plastic bottle and, and, and paying $2 a gallon for it? It makes no sense. And we thought, well, gosh, it's got to be just some kind of weird luxury product. People who have too much money spend their money on all kinds of weird things, and, and that's kind of how we thought about it. One of the things that that came out of our research and it certainly lines up with a lot of other folks' research is that bottled water consumption is actually inversely related to income, correlated with income. In other words, the more money you have, the more likely you are to drink tap water and the less likely you are to drink bottled water. And the less money you have, the more likely you are to drink bottled water, the less likely you are to drink tap water. So it's exactly backward from the idea of a luxury product. Folks are drinking this stuff because they believe it's safer and it's necessary to keep them healthy and safe, and they're willing to pay large percentages of their uh, relatively low income uh, in order to to feel safe. That's that's what we mean by defensive spending. I'm I'm spending on something that I believe is safer than uh, the lower-cost product.
2: I've been trying to remember uh, the name of a book by uh, a a local uh, freelance journalist. Um, Anna Clark is her name, and I've been trying to remember the name of the book because um, it, it's it's about the Flint water crisis, but it it backs it up way before the switch to the Flint River and talks about. Um, even the beginning of municipal water systems. And I was surprised to learn in that book that um, tap water hasn't been around that long.
1: No, it really hasn't, at least in the, the broad sweep of human history. Look, the book you're talking about, I think, is Poison City.
2: That's right. That's by, right.
1: By Yeah. No, the municipal tap water, or, or just tap water. Generally, yeah, it's only been around maybe 100, 110 years, depending on where you are in the country, and widespread chlorination and disinfection of, of water is you know, really made about 100 years old. There was a time, you know, I, we argue in our book, there's really throughout human civilization, governments have established and maintained their legitimacy in part through water infrastructure. And that has certainly been, was certainly true in the United States. One of my favorite stories about this sort of state building or, or government confidence building through water actually also comes from Michigan, uh, up in Saginaw, uh, a little over a hundred years ago, Saginaw built a water treatment plant. It's still there, it's still it's been upgraded several times of course, but the same treatment plant is still there. And, uh, you know when saginaw built this treatment plant and opened it they had a parade it was a huge community event because until that point the people of saginaw had to get their drinking water by pumping uh, you know street corner hand pumps that would draw water out of the aquifer and so the way you got water for your home was you went out to the corner and you pumped water well when they built this treatment plant with the promise of sending potable drinking water to everybody's home, directly piped into the home. They had a huge parade, and the centerpiece of this parade was a hearse. And inside the hearse was a hand pump. And they had a (laughs) ceremonial burial. And the mayor of Saginaw, and I think the governor was there, and they all had their top hats and tuxedos, and they they buried this hand pump uh, under the cornerstone of the treatment plant. And the water treatment plant had a great big sign over the front that said, the world's best water. That's a credit-claiming opportunity for politicians right there. That's, that's an opportunity for government to say, hey, look, people, we're doing an amazing thing for you. Uh, and that, that's, that's, been, that's been lost now. Right now, now it's, it's politicians largely trying to run away from drinking water systems and trying to avoid blame for disasters. I think it creates a very different kind of dynamic where it's, it's no longer folks Trying to claim credit for doing good things, but rather trying to avoid blame for for bad things happening to folks how do we
2: how do we change that, manny? How do we build trust in in people huh? because they're they're not buying the parades and the the phonal, phony burials and the ribbon cuttings and all that stuff anymore
1: yeah. Yeah and, and and we want to be clear about this. You no matter how good your your drinking water is, you can't sort of publicity and PR your way out of, of the, out of this problem.
2: Well, the the Look, thing is that you know, you were talking about the data that's available through the EPA and FDA and other organizations that track what's going on with these systems. But when people do that, they they don't believe the science. They, they don't believe the testing. They don't believe the, the, um, uh, the the government agencies when they when they give an all clear or when they say, you know, this is meeting standards. They don't trust the standards. Um, how do we how do we change that? Now, you, you know, typically it's, you know, you just put out a good product and and stick to it and keep the quality up and eventually you build trust but i'm not sure that it's going to be that simple
1: well i think in some ways it kind of is that simple Uh, i want to i want to be clear here that that there's no easy fixes my my co-authors and i we wanted to end this book on a positive note so we spent a lot of this book talking about distrust and mistrust but Then in the last couple chapters we turn it around and start talking about how you how you maintain or rebuild or build trust among people who have either never trusted you or maybe used to trust you and now don't so how do you do that i think there are three things what we came up with was this there are three things that that uh, that really we're going to talk about drinking water but they really apply to any basic service that government provides whether it's postal service law enforcement uh, public health, any of these things apply. Excellence, openness, and equity. you got to be excellent. The service has to be good. Right? The, the service just has to be good. One of the problems with drinking water uh, the management, the way it's done today, as opposed to when Saginaw opened that plant a hundred and some odd years ago, is that... Uh, w- Utilities operate under this, this Safe Drinking Water Act regulatory regime. And I think in a lot of cases, communities that operate water treatment plants think of those regulations as their targets. But they're not really targets. They're guardrails. They're saying, like, these are the minimums. These, these are the standards. If you go beyond these levels of contamination, you're likely to make people sick. Well, that shouldn't be our target. That should be our guardrail. What we really need to do is is try to provide a product that is is very safe, it's very reliable, it's as affordable as possible, and if we can do it, we should make that product taste and smell good. That's another thing that came out in our research is that the taste, the the smell, the appearance of the water, if people don't like the way it looks, if they don't like the way it tastes, if they don't like the way it smells, they're not going to trust it even if chemically it's perfectly healthy for you. You're still not going to want to drink that glass of water if it looks cloudy or tastes weird. Uh, even if it's, it's not going to hurt you, it's, it's going to make you feel bad or it's going to make you distrust it. So the water quality has to be excellent. Both by openness, we mean, again, making, making those data available, but then also making the data available to them, uh, making the data available to the public in a way that's meaningful. Back in the 1990s, Congress amended the Safe Drinking Water Act to include a lot of public reporting requirements so that the general public would understand what was in their tap water. Unfortunately, a lot of utilities treated that as a box-checking exercise, and they would do, again, the regulatory minimum public reporting. You and I, probably most of the people listening to this program, at one point or another have received their local drinking water quality report. and. If you don't have a degree in chemical engineering, it's difficult to decipher what that thing is. You know, I, I mean, I have a Ph.D. I study drinking water my whole life. I look at those, those, uh, <laughs> those drinking water quality reports, and my eyes sort of glaze over, right? They're, they're difficult to understand. There's sure. that been research to show that people don't understand those, and it actually makes them more confused about their tap water. Well, we need to do better. And we can do better. We've got legions of professionals who study how to communicate effectively. We need to, to take advantage of their services and learn how to communicate more, more, uh, more clearly with the public. We also have to be open to the public in the sense that we need to invite the public into decision-making about water. It, again, it's the most intimate relationship. We saw tragically what happens in Flint when you completely cut out local governance from something as important as tap water. You take, you take this vital, essential service away from the people that it serves and, and uh, put it into institutions that are going to abandon them. You know, that, that's that's got to be part of openness too. And then the last one, I haven't said anything that other folks haven't said before. I think sure. the real insight that comes that from our book, that, that from, from Dr. Zolke, Dr. Switzer and me, is equity. One of the huge findings of this book is that failure of tap water anywhere undermines trust everywhere. Failure anywhere undermines trust everywhere. One of the really thorny problems with basic services like water is that a failure that happens in Flint doesn't just undermine trust in Flint. It undermines trust everywhere. And one of the fascinating things we found is that the vector of that distrust it's not geographic region it's social identity i'll tell you what i mean by that when the flint water crisis happened people changed their behaviors across the country but they changed it mostly uh, but those behaviors changed mostly among poor and non-white populations because people in other parts of the country could look at flint and say hey that's that's a city that looks a little bit like mine it's got a high poverty rate it's got a majority non-white population. They look a little bit like me. Uh you know, they, if their tap water's bad, what does that say about mine? If their if their government institutions fail them, if their regulatory institutions fail them, what does that mean for me? So, so by equity, we mean water doesn't have to be just good in my community. It's got to be good everywhere. It's got to be good for everyone. It can't just be data. It can't just be available for me and my community. It's got to be available for everyone and everywhere. And when that is, when that's the case, then we have the, the we are in the position. We are when excellent. We're open. We're equitable. Now we're in a position to start rebuilding that trust. And let's not, let's not kid ourselves. It's going to take a long time. You know, when, when people lose their trust a lot faster than they build it. So. This, we're talking about a generational enterprise. It's not, it's not going to happen overnight. But if people are serious about governing, they're going to need to find ways to rebuild trust. Uh, and that's going to involve, that by necessity, it's going to involve getting the basic services right.
2: Would it, would it be beneficial to um, develop systems that allowed or included... Uh, citizens in setting standards and and reviewing uh, testing and so on um, so that there's some sense that you know we're we're managing this ourselves and and we know that it's been done right?
1: You know that's a that's a tricky one because getting the getting the chemistry right getting the engineering right it's technically complex.
2: I'm not saying now, that we get people to do the engineering, but to oversee it and to set standards and to review the work that's being done.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, in in principle, that's what our institutions are supposed to be doing right now. Whether they do that effectively is is a sort of a separate question. But in places where we've got municipal governments or, or special districts and authorities running our water systems, the reason we put those governments in charge of things is that they are, again, at least in principle, they're supposed to be responsive to voters. They're supposed to be responsive to citizens. Uh, where we have regulatory authorities at the state level, whether they're environmental regulators or, or utility pricing regulators, they're supposed to you know, they're supposed to serve the public interest, and those folks are ultimately uh, responsible to elected officials. So, in theory, that's supposed to be happening. Whether it happens in practice, is an entirely different question. Um, and and I think there there are good reasons to to be concerned that maybe our our institutions are failing in that way, uh, because they aren't doing enough to draw in uh, to to take to draw in the public and to take that public interest to, uh, into consideration.
2: What got you interested in in utility governance uh, initially?
1: You know, like most kids, I grew up dreaming of studying utility pricing and regulation. When I was, was, <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's, it's I remember I we had a club. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's right. Yeah. After school, uh, after school, the utility club. Uh, the first two rules were not to talk about utility clubs. Yeah, it's it's uh I kinda came to it like a lot of people who I think get fascinated with utility governance. We came to it kinda by accident. When I when I graduated from college and then started working, I worked for a little consulting firm as an economist uh in the Pacific Northwest and just by uh just by coincidence, the firm's uh the practices most uh most lively or, or lucrative a uh, line of business was consulting with utility companies and it was doing financial planning and and sort of revenue forecasts bond feasibilities, feasibility studies all kinds of kinds of uh, financial and economic uh, analysis mostly for water sewer and stormwater systems i didn't know anything about those systems before i started that job but I, I started learning more about it, got kind of fascinated with it. And when I decided to go back to graduate school and get a Ph.D. and become a professor, I sort of stayed with that topic. Uh, and there, there are all kinds of reasons for it. Water and sewer systems are endlessly fascinating for me. One, one of the Even if you don't care at all about water, and all of us should care about water, but even if you don't care about water... It's just water and sewer systems are just fascinating because there are just so darn many of them. Uh, There are 50,000 community water systems in the United States. Uh, There are something like 15 or 16,000 sewer systems in the United States. Uh, That's a lot of cases to study. Those are all run by human beings. So if you're interested in organizations, if you're interested in governance, it's just an endlessly fascinating thing to study. And so even as my academic career has continued, I've stayed engaged with the water sector, uh, with with the, the officials and, and professionals who run these systems, uh, and, and it's been a, a, a very a fruitful and gratifying part of my career.
2: My guest is uh, Manny Teodoro, um, the book, he's uh, one of the authors of a book called Profits of Distrust, Citizen-Consumers, Drinking Water and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government. Um, Manny, um, what's next for you?
1: Well, we're we're continuing work on along this line, uh, and one of, one of the things that ends we end the book with, of course, is how do you turn this thing around? Well, Dr. Samantha Zulke, she's at the University of Iowa, uh, is beginning to lead a project, and it's going to be time for for me and Professor Switzer to help her. Uh, uh, starting a project on how you do that, how you rebuild trust, How? how what are some ways that, that utilities can rebuild that trust following along the lines of excellence, openness and equity. So that's an effort we've got underway. Uh, I, I continue to work with, with communities, with regulators, on things like how to measure and address concerns like affordability and uh, equity in water pricing. Uh, water governance. Uh, there's there are efforts underway at at local, state, and federal levels to address issues related to to affordability. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of that work lately as well. I think another one of the reasons that water becomes so important to people these days is it's become more expensive. You know, when if sure. you went back 30, 20, 30 years ago, the water bill was probably the smallest regular bill you had to pay. Certainly compared to energy or or your cable TV or, or your mortgage, water was a, was a pittance, but water's price has been going up significantly faster. So now water is more of an affordability concern. A lot of my work lately has to do with that as well. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm staying engaged and, and uh, the, next, the next work is, is probably gonna continue to stay, stay with water and, and uh, a lot more of this applied, applied efforts working with policymakers.
2: Well, Manny, we're just about out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share?
1: I do. It's just Manny That's mannyteodoro.com. That's uh, M-A-N-N-Y-T-E-O-D-O-R-O dot com. You can also find me at the University of Wisconsin's La Follette School of Government, excuse me, La Follette School of Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin.
2: Well, Manny, thanks for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning and for, uh, all the work that you do and, and by all means, keep up the good
1: work. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been great. Take care.
2: Once again, the name of the book is, uh, Profits of Distrust, Citizen Consumers, Drinking Water, and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government. And, uh... My guest, Manny Teodoro, was one of the authors of that book. We're going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hello there, citizens.
0: Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out.
3: East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint.
4: Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or
3: green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination, to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball, or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor, go to cdc.gov slash vaccines, or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hey, why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show! Mom, Dad, we gotta get gas. You're
4: not here, you're not! This place is charging an arm and a leg!
3: Look, these days price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual, but when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time, but when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them.
4: Stop Attorney Generaling! we got a concert to
3: get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Mark. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away! We're at a gas station! What? <sighs>
1: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Program.
3: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on The Tom
0: Sumner Program.
5: One, two, three, four, five... shore Alleluia. once again now row the boat ashore Hallelujah! michael row the boat ashore keep it rolling Everybody wait a second Dickie, dick we, we hum, oh, it this i moment. want to go back to the start and take it one more time from the top oh, wow. michael row the boat ashore i just like everybody to join in this time okay one more time okay right. gang in a world torn asunder by strife and by unhappiness what sound in the world enters into our heart and brings love and brotherhood but the sound of people's voices joining together and singing so let's roof the rafters people Let's fill this room with the most joyous sound known to man, people, people singing. For in the ether of the air, in the great sky of of the faraway land, fill the sky, the musical sky, with voices intertwining themselves in a giant choral arrangement like colors in your mind and lines going up and down as the voices of people join together. So friends, let's fill this room with love. Let's fill this room with music and song For people driving by, maybe outside They'll be in their car and we'll be in here singing they'll be driving by and, and as they drive by they'll probably say What the hell's going on? <laughs> Let's sing out now, friends Michael Rowe, the boat Show. Sing out hallelujah michael wrote the boat ashore hallelujah everybody a second. that guy wasn't singing there <laughs> which guy the girl the guy with the the girl with the blonde hair you I mean, weren't they... singing very well there would you join in with us and fill it? you will you will you'll sing with us now huh go ahead Here we go, gang. Michael, Michael row the boat ashore. Hallelujah. Michael, row the boat ashore. Hallelujah. Now, everybody, Mm honk. Michael, row that boat ashore. Come on Mike, everybody sing now. Sores, baby. <laughs> hey, I know what let's do again. Now, what do you want to do? Every time we, we, we're humming, you want to do something different? Well, I have an idea, that I like... Why don't we... Gang, why don't... People with love in your hearts let's oh, already... all show our love let's all open let's start the hum go back to the take it from the top of the hum top of the hum but this time let's all hum with our mouths open well, but, well why do you want to do that we'll get more volume if well why we... do you we have plenty of volume why do you want more volume so that michael can hear us maybe even ralph will hear, so hear us also. So gang, let's all hum with our mouths open this time and get tell a little me. more volume. That's a nice idea. Really, that's a great idea. But you so, cannot hum with your mouth open. Yes, you do. All you have Don't to... ask anybody to hum with their mouth open. Yes, all you have you to do... You can't do w- that. You so Listen, if you tried to hum with your mouth open, you could hurt yourself. That's too bad. Yeah. So, he is. I'll tell you what, if you want more volume, why don't you ask everybody to awe. Oh. I mean, not just a regular ah, but like this. Awe, 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 awe. See, it's louder, it's easy to do, and if you ask everybody in this entire room to ah together in unison to Michael, you will experience a thrilling, exciting, vibrant... It'll be a, a vibrant experience. Tremendous. Let's all open up our hummers now, and all ah together, okay? Right. Everybody except you. You hum with your mouth open. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh.
0: deposit on it. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.